0: welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield and I'm interested in the people behind the positions in our public conversations, the deep things that drive us and how we can better understand people different from ourselves. In this episode you'll hear a conversation I had with Satbir Singh. Satbir is the CEO of the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants and previously spent time developing campaigns and political strategies for people's movements and working as an advisor to the UN and the World Bank. He studied at Oxford, so as and as a Fulbright Scholar at Columbia. We spoke about his mobile childhood, how his mother's Sikh faith has formed him, and why rabble-rousing and reconciliation are both necessary for change. It's that beer. We're going to launch in the deep end with me asking what your sacred value is. And for those new to the podcast, it's really pretty poorly defined <laughs> um, and allows space for the interviewee to fill themselves. But it's really trying to get to the heart of um, your deepest principles, your deepest values, the things you try and live by, even if you probably i hope like me, you fail at it
1: Well, thank you um sort of very, very deep questions to start with. um I would say that my sacred value um the thing that you know if somebody challenged me on it i would I would fight tooth and nail to protect that value um more than anything is the idea that that nobody is completely good and nobody is completely bad, that everybody has a little bit of both in them. And pretty much everybody is capable, yes, of doing really awful things. And we see that all around us in the news. But I think everybody is capable of doing great things and good things, and that most of that comes out in the most mundane, ordinary ways. But that we all have that potential in us, and that we're all... You know there's a an amazing lawyer who I follow very closely in the u s called Brian Stevenson It's a civil rights activist, and he says we're all more than the worst thing that we have ever done and that's something that I think I increasingly get into those discussions and arguments with people about because I do think that there is there is salvation there is hope there is possibility in everybody around us um, I'd say that's sort of my Or at least I try every day to live up to that idea and to try and see that in everybody, particularly because we have so many strong disagreements with people about lots of things. It's so important to remember that ultimately most people are motivated by their idea of what is good.
0: Yeah. Where does it, where does it, where's tension with it? Like, is there examples you can point to where you've really felt that? Like, oh, I really hate the way these people are speaking about this or in this decision I've got to make, that's the tension there's pulling.
1: Well, a lot of the time on issues that are kind of deeply political, and I, of course, work on immigration, which is forever political, there are people who are kind of motivated, informed by what we would dispute, things that we would just say are just factually untrue. There's been a barrage of information that's come at them. They are ultimately motivated by what they think is best for their communities, their families, their neighbours and their friends. But now we've gotten into a place that's quite warped um, and we're having two very different conversations and I, I often find myself completely understanding how if you were presented with that information, these are the conclusions that you would draw and this is where you would, would find yourself. Um, and I'm still trying to see the good in you and I'm still trying to, to, to bring us both to a place where we can agree. Um, but it becomes increasingly hard, particularly in this environment, to do that.
0: I can imagine that um, in your job, it has to be a discipline. It it won't just—you won't be able to retain that position unless you're working on it.
1: It does, and I think we we face pressure from from all sides of that debate. I mean, I'm obviously firmly in favour of kind of progressive, comprehensive immigration reform and a much fairer, more tolerant approach to migration and to migrants. But I have to find common ground at different points with people who disagree with me, and I find that easiest. Oddly enough, I find it easiest where the grievance is the strongest, Um, where where somebody's grievance against migrant communities is actually the strongest that it Mm. can be. Mm. Because often that is because they have a legitimate grievance of some sort in their life and in their community. It's often got nothing to do with immigration. But because there is a grievance there, we can talk about that. You can see the pain. We can talk about that pain. We can work out where it's coming from. Um, But where it's politically motivated, where it's strategic, where the person that's sort of offering up the opinion knows that what they're saying is kind of untrue, but it's sort of politically useful to say certain things time and time again, that's where it becomes really, really
0: difficult. I'm speaking to someone in a few weeks who was very involved in campaigning for Brexit and I realised that, I think, I haven't gone back and doing a fine tooth comb, but that you two are the first people who I think your careers would be defined by campaigning or advocacy for a certain position and that's interesting to me that I sort of accidentally overlooked those voices in public life maybe and I wonder if it's because I instinctively feel that the formation of being a campaigner or an activist naturally can lead you towards not being someone who is a bridge person because in order to do your job well or in some kind of conceptions of what it means to do your job well and not others and I'm sure we'll get onto this um you might be formed in different ways. But we'll come on to that. I need to uh, dig deeper into that sacred value. Um, And I want to ask about your childhood and the ideas present in your childhood, whether they were religious or philosophical or political or other. Um, So paint me a picture. And if it feels like that sacred value kind of grew out of anything there, please do mention it.
1: Um, So I was born in Essex um, to two migrants from India, uh, my mum and my dad um my mum uh has always been a practicing Sikh um my father someone who observed my mum being a practicing Sikh more than anything um Say so a bit more what was his did, he, did- I, I think my dad grew up uh, but my dad grew up not cutting his hair he had a turban his father was in the military his father then sort of part of the independence movement um then worked in government after I was going to say after brexit but
0: a different <laughs>
1: a different kind of brexit wow. i guess um the, yeah. the, the one of the earlier brexits um worked in government after independence in 47 um and my dad was just sort of raised in that very disciplined environment in india um and he came he came to to northern ireland when he was 18 um and didn't leave um and i think those first tastes of independence of a slightly different environment he his hair was cut within five years um he was you know working nights in a bar um and and so he was more a sort of observer from the sidelines of my mother's faith um my mum's faith was really interesting she had also grown up in a very disciplined environment that, that had its own particular challenges for for women in particular very traditional family um and she was a rebel in many, many ways. She cut her hair short, she pierced her ears, she has tattoos. Um she wouldn't mind me saying any of this because I think she's very proud um of of all of it. Um, but in the middle of that, she'd kind of kept a very strong connection to the root of her faith, which was um, you know, worshipping sort of everything around us that God exists in all of us, in everything around us and therefore there is good in everything. There is good in everyone, there's good in the plants, there's good in the people, um, and so our role in this world is to maintain kind of balance and harmony with that, um, and to look out above all for those who are less powerful, who are less advantaged than the rest of us. Um, so I was, I was sort of a plus one in a way on that journey with her. Um, born in Essex and then moved um, into London and then spent long bits of my childhood actually kind of moving back and forth between India and the UK. Um, My grandfather was ill and ageing. He lived to almost 100. Um, But then there was always this permanent question of whether my parents actually wanted the rest of their life to be in the UK or whether there was some sort of calling at home in India. And so we had these various experiments of moving back and not working out, moving back here not working out again and moving back. So there was a bit of um, upheaval at different points.
0: Yeah, that Um, sounds both kind of, I'm sure that was enriching in lots of ways, but also a bit destabilising as a child.
1: Absolutely. It was really enriching in the sense that, this is a bit counterintuitive to say, but living outside the UK allows you to learn more about the UK and vice versa, because you see things that are different and it forces you to ask why things are a certain way in the UK. So for everything from, you know, why is the pin in the, in the socket one way? And you realise that whole process of decisions have gone into making something one way, and so it must be different somewhere else. Um, but also really confusing for me, um, because in India I was never Indian enough to be fully Indian. And in Britain I was never fully British enough, I felt at least, to be fully British. So in India, you know, friends, cousins, family, neighbours, you know, I couldn't name the capitals of all the states and I didn't know all the film stars and the names of everyone on the cricket team and vice versa here. I hadn't picked a football team by the time I was 10. Um, I hadn't been around when Titanic came out. Um, So that sort of inability to kind of fit seamlessly into one box or another, which as I grew up and entered my teens and early adulthood, actually I found to be one of the greatest gifts that I could have because... Um, sort of given up on this idea that you can have one identity that you can be many different things and it's okay for them all to sit next to each other and i'm sort of in a way despite it being very difficult and challenging as a kid very grateful um to have been taught that at such a young age
0: mm. and uh, where did they end up your mom and dad i'm just being nosy now
1: in london okay they're still here well my sisters who live in london have had children ah. and so i think it's a question of where there are grandchildren my yeah. parents will yeah. find
0: them as I know, having had children now, we can put the kibosh on grandparental plans <laughs> by, uh, yes, uh, anchoring them to certain places. Um, so I just want to dig a little bit more into that sense of uh, what, what did practice look like for your mum and, and for you? Did you go to Gurdwara? What were the, the ways it expressed itself in your home?
1: Practice in our home meant that, really, I mean, first, any big occasion, it's someone's birthday. GCSE results day. It's um, one of us is going on a long haul flight. Um, Means first thing in the morning, we go into the front room, my parents' house, and we still do this to this day. Go into the front room in my parents' house where they keep the Guru Granth Sahib, the holy book. We all cover our heads, and my mum says prayers. And for most of our lives, we couldn't understand the words, um, but. I still because love of the, the way the language, because of the language, and because she does it very fast. Right. But I still love the way my mum will put the key words in English in the middle, so it'll be a sort of Duh, GCSEs, Duh, oh. Duh. and and so so you'll kind of get the get the gist of what she's talking about today. Um, and then we'd go to the gurdwara um, once a month in our local in our area in Brent when I was a kid. The Sikh families in the neighbourhood would rent, or I think we were given the church hall for the second Saturday of every month to use as our place of worship. So we would go there um, once a month, meet members of the community, um, pray, listen to the songs and the hymns, and then eat sort of longer, the, the, the sort of meal together. Um, and over the course of teens kind of going back and forth to India, I became much more interested in the kind of history of the faith because you'd visit these places that were 500 years old and 400 years old, and this is where this kind of guru or this figure from the faith had taught and held court and all of that. So I became really fascinated with that history of it, and I still am today. Um, I read a lot about the faith at the moment, particularly uncovering the kind of radical, I'd say almost socialist roots of the faith, this kind of, you know, Wars that were waged against kings and against sort of wealthy emperors and sort of massive upheavals and and the role that the Sikh faith played in them and that they played on the Sikh faith.
0: Okay. So I want to kind of fill in some of the gaps between then and now, because, you know, you mentioned that one of the ways your dad rebelled is that he cut his hair and you don't wear a turban. Tell me, um, tell me kind of uh, from that moment of the the kind of traditions and rituals with your mum. You then kind of go off to to university, to Oxford and Columbia and LSE and lots of you know a huge amount of time there. What what is the what role is your faith playing there? And if I can, because it, the, you know dropping the G bomb is always awkward. What about what about God? It's a monotheistic faith, I think. And of what what did that word mean to you during that period?
1: So during that period, you know, college, early adulthood, I think like a lot of people, I was just generally struggling with who the hell am I. Um, How do I fit into this this new world where I've gone from school and I've gone to this university where everybody's very different? Um, And so I think I buried a lot of it. Actually, I buried a lot of that connection with my faith, that connection with my roots, with my identity, almost just as a sort of evolved way of surviving.
0: Mm. What were you studying?
1: Um, I was studying PPE. Okay. Um, so predictable, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: um, boring choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I did sort of bury a lot of that, I think. Um my Indian nurse, my Sikh nurse became something that was very much for me, that was private. Um
0: Did you feel quite in a minority just studying PPE at Oxford?
1: I think so. I, I I don't even think it was just about sort of race and faith and I and sort of those those aspects of identity. I was sort of one of only, I think, six state school kids in my year at my college and um and maybe only two doing PPE and I had never known anyone who had gone to Oxbridge. So the whole place was just this sort of strange fantasy land for me. And everyone else seemed to have a complete understanding of what everything means and where you do it and what a tutorial is and what's a lecture and what is even song and all of that. And I had no idea about any of that. And so I sort of hid these aspects of myself, um, which as soon as I left, and then I went to SOAS a year later, which is the complete opposite experience um where i was sort of encouraged to celebrate them um and and found more of that connection again and moved to india actually between oxford and SOAS and then moved back after SOAS, um and found myself embracing once again that diversity of identities that i have within myself
0: Mm. when i asked you earlier about your kind of how would you self-describe you said increasingly seek what do you think uh what do you think it's driving what do you think's I was gonna say driving, but that sounds negative calling or what do you think that's about at the moment?
1: More than anything, it's I think driven by that same sacred value that there is good in everyone. And I think faith and the Sikh faith, in common with a lot of other faiths, is a discipline and it's a disciplining force in that it encourages us to see that every day in every aspect of life. Um and I see my mum's faith really pushing her to that you know she's she's encountered some great people in her life she's encountered some awful people in her life as most of us have but one thing i'm constantly amazed by is her ability to see good in all of them um and it's so powerful um absolving yourself of the burden of hatred and anger Mm. is something really powerful and healing um I think also community has become much more important to me in recent years. Um, I celebrate and I'm really pleased with and happy with this kind of diverse tapestry of identities that make me, make up me as a person. But I think also you reach a certain point in your life where you do feel like community is really important. Um, and I think faith for me has become something that allows me to access community.
0: God, the transcendent, you're kind of, what does that word What does it evoke in you? What's the experience of it, him, her, they in your life?
1: I think God is everywhere. I've been, for a lot of my life, I would say agnostic about the question of whether God exists, while also being very firmly defensive of the idea of faith. Mm. Um, But I think God, insofar as God exists, it is in everything, because because if God is the divine, if God is the creator, if God is the terminator and, and all of that, not, not in the of Hollywood sense, but it's sort of creator and the destructor, yeah. um, as it were, the destroyer, um, then it's everywhere. God is in everything. And therefore, that more than anything encourages me to show greater respect to everything. Um, it's really interesting to look at sort of faith and ecology because it 's this idea that you know we've been gifted or loaned this planet, we didn't do it, we didn't create the leaves, we didn't create the grass, the wa- the water, the trees, or each other um, and it's a the presence of God in all of that is is an incentive or an, or an urge to just be better to all of it
0: mm. I feel like Sikh uh, faith is one of the less visible faiths in the UK and in our public conversation. So it may well be that there's lots of listeners who, who really don't have much to put in that, you know, that conceptual box. So uh, is there one thing in terms of uh, engaging across difference, but maybe just as a kind of starter that you'd like people to understand who've never met a Sikh, who don't really, and, uh, don't really know what to associate with it, or perhaps have associations you'd like to remove that you think are negative?
1: I'd say because, because Sikhs are most commonly associated with the wearing of the turban and the not cutting of the hair, people will often assume that Sikhism is therefore a very doctrinaire, um, a very disciplined faith, and perhaps very conservative with a small c. Um, and if anything, I just want to sort of highlight how, at least in my interpretation of the faith, Sikhism is possibly, partly because it's one of the youngest faiths, one of the most progressive faiths um out of the major faiths that, you know, our, our founding scriptures and texts, the teachings of the gurus in the fifteenth and sixteenth and seventeenth centuries were 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 preaching not just gender equality but gender justice. Um as early as, you know, the seventeenth century, um, that the the movement within the faith against sort of widening economic and social inequality has existed for four hundred years that the temple, the gurdwara, the primary function of things like the langar hall, where you eat is to remove inequalities. Everybody is equal. Everybody sits on the floor. So, so the millionaire and the pauper sit together and, and eat exactly the same simple meal. Um, and those are the things that really encourage me and attract me to this faith.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's really helpful. So tell me about migration, immigration, and that, thread that's become so key in your career was it obvious to you early on that that was something you want to pursue or did you take a few uh turns in other directions first
1: oh many many turns too many too many to (laughs) to go into here um but essentially since i don't know probably since the age of six (laughs) i've been a campaigner um i've wanted to challenge injustice um and I suppose along with this idea that there is good in everyone, if I could be cheeky and add another sacred value, it's, it's this idea that everything is temporary. Everything can be changed. Everything is the product of decisions. Everything is the product of people willing things into creation. We have democracy because people willed it into creation. We don't need to accept injustice. We could change all of it. Um, we're more powerful than we realise. So at the age of six, I had a teacher who used to throw books at our faces. Um, If she didn't like your homework, she'd throw your exercise book at your head. Um, She made me sit in a corner where I got a nail in my hand. It went straight through. I was talking or doing something stupid, so I probably deserved to be made to sit in the corner. This nail went right through my hand. Rusty nail. And I said, you know, miss,
0: I've got a nail in my
1: hand. And she said, that's part of the punishment. Um, And so I, I used my dad's typewriter and wrote a letter and then I got everybody in our class and everybody that had been in her class before to sign it and we gave it to the head teacher as a petition and 3 weeks later she announced she was retiring from teaching um and I was formative six, and I was 6 so I sort of learned this idea that you can change stuff if you just get organized and if your cause is just then nothing really should stand in your way if you can be organized and overcome those boundaries and barriers um, so out of college, I was working on issues like access to justice and prison reform um and sort of anti protecting anti corruption activists in india
0: um you work with the u n is that right
1: Well, I first worked with the Commonwealth Human Rights Initiative, and at various points I was with u n d p as well mm-hmm. um Working on. I'm sorry, I don't
0: know what that acronym stands for.
1: UN Development Programme. Thank Um, you. There's a
0: lot of acronyms around the UN.
1: Too many, too many. Um, So, working at the sort of activist end, you know, fighting against corruption, fighting for reform of the prison system and the police systems, but then also working at the kind of institutional level. um, Once you've won campaigns, going, okay, so what does this look like? Now we've agreed that we're going to fix this. um, Let's figure out how to fix it. So, doing a bit of jumping back and forth between shouting and agitating and then fixing, which was really, really helpful to do both. Um moved all around the world and in two thousand and late two thousand and sixteen we were living in Washington, my wife and I, um, and we both sort of got told we had to leave America. Um because so visas ending visas ending um and not going to be renewed because new administration coming in, unlikely to entertain these requests. Um
0: How long had you been there?
1: We'd been there for two and a half, nearly three years. Um, My wife's an Indian national. um, I'm a UK national. She had to move back to India. I came back to the UK. It was a year and a half before we could live together because the Home Office kept rejecting our applications, um, not reading things, losing paperwork, um, told us we didn't know how we were going to pay for the upkeep of our children, which we don't have. Um, All of that. So, sort of got involved in campaign groups who were campaigning against the restrictions on spousal reunion. Um, through that, became a trustee of JCWI, um, and then applied for the role of chief executive, and sort of ended up as chief executive of the oldest migrant rights organisation in the UK. So, a very circuitous route that brought me through the world of campaigning and policy and communications, and then took those skills and entered the world of migration through lived experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, that totally fleshes out my sense that nothing is purely political, right? Everything is personal at heart, Yeah, Um, the things that drive us. And it's one of the reasons we like to kind of hear about people's stories to get a sense of it. Um, So dealing with disagreement, and I almost feel like the immigration world must be one of the um, most brutal crucibles um, uh, for this, and you've said a lot about your sacred values, about seeing the good in everyone. Um, but I want to come back to that tension between uh, what in campaigning is is really trying to persuade those who deeply disagree with you and how much is mobilising the support of people who sort of broadly agree with you anyway, but just haven't got noisy mm. about it yet. I imagine those are some of the conversations that you have internally because they require quite different skill sets, quite different personalities. Um, do, do you see yourself on kind of... A methodology on one side or the other?
1: This is, I mean, that's a really incisive question because it, it, it strikes at the heart of all the debates that we have within our movement. I'm sure many movements have this same sort of debate. And I think it's going to sound wishy washy, but I think it's not an either or. Um, on an issue like migration, as with pretty much everything, you have to kind of wear both hats or somebody has to wear either hat. Um, And you have to have both hats being worn. People need to push conversations out. Mm. People need to make the bold, the crazy, the radical statement today that in 10 years' time becomes common wisdom. But you also need to have people then saying, well, this is now kind of common wisdom. We've built a lot of consensus around this. How do we get this into legislation? How do we get this into just sort of grassroots community conversations? and it's very difficult to try and do both and we sort of make a point of moving from one end of that to the it's other okay at different points it. yeah
0: and do you naturally do you, are you someone who actually is energized by the scrap you feel like that kind of the the fight the good fight is how you maintain that sense of energy and momentum or are you someone who you're kind of your most deeply satisfying things is where you see change in someone who um You've kind of done that kind of going out of your natural habitat into hostile ground to build allegiances with someone who didn't start off agreeing with you.
1: Again, I think it's a bit of both. And I, I'd say that some of the most energetic supporters that you would call sort of base um, or your base come from the other end of the spectrum. And again, it comes back to this idea of grievance. I think one of the reasons why immigration, and immigration is a great example of this, why it's so hard to have difficult conversations or conversations about difficult complex moral political issues in our societies because there is so much grievance around mm. um about all sorts of things so if you just take the issue of race and migration and class and economics i mean that's five issues that's all the issues <laughs> together but if you just take those and you say you know people who have who have who have lived through the kind of Excesses of the hostile environment who have been sort of detained, treated awfully, really struggle to just live and exist with their families, they have grievance. They have a legitimate grievance against the way that that system exists and the way it's sort of justified and the way it's supported. But if you take people who have, who live in communities where, you know, there haven't been jobs for 40 years, um, and where the government or local government or repeated governments of different parties have continuously failed to invest in those communities, they have grievance. The reason there's conflict is because they have been told that their grievance is with each other. Mm. And as soon as you break down those silos and you say, actually, we are all in this together, that that. These two groups being encouraged to fight against each other is exactly why we'll never have the change that everybody needs, that actually the experience of the migrant or the asylum seeker struggling with the system and the experience of you know, the man going to the job centre to prove that you know, he is unfit to work having had two strokes and a heart attack and dealing with that bureaucracy is identical. Um, and when you bring those two groups together and you have those conversations, you take people who five minutes ago were rapidly anti-immigrant and then you, t- and you take people from migrant communities who were so scared of, you know, that stereotype of the white working class racist or what have you. And they're the best of friends and they've both recognised that they're in this together and that their cause is the same.
0: And where are the places that that can happen, where people can, Rowan Williams talks about the habit of recognition the habit of human recognition of the person who felt like the enemy and how difficult it is to find spaces and practices for it where do you see it
1: it happens i mean on a day-to-day basis you see this happening in some of the work that say trade unions do where where some of them are now getting much better at kind of having these difficult conversations where they recognize that let's say 30% of our membership are migrants and we've been sort of buying into this idea that migration is the enemy of the worker, but actually 30% of the workers in our union are migrants. And we're sort of, you know, we're seeing unions do a much better job of bringing those people together to talk about those things and saying, whether you were born here, whether your family just arrived a year ago, you're both affected by the closure of your local a Um, Now let's organize together. Now let's work together to talk about that. You're mm. both affected by what's happening on the shop floor. Mm. Faith is also another place where people come together. Um, I think faith leaders have been very effective um, at that. And so, you know, just sort of even just following him on Twitter, the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, you know, some of those ideas about oneness, about unity, about there being more that unites us than divides Mm. us, Mm. um, those are incredibly important, powerful ideas. The other place that people come together. Is in very mundane, ordinary day to day issues when they pop up, which are often more salient for people than these existential ideas about who is Britain and what is Britain, but just things like underfunding of the local school or yeah. spiking crime in the neighbourhood when people come together with common purpose.
0: Yeah. I read an article of yours recently and the kind of the trigger article for it in Third Sector, which is the kind of charity uh, in house publication, I guess. Um, and someone was commenting that the sector has a problem with, I could think, as an essentially kind of class and political diversity, that it's hard to be a Tory working in the charity sector, it's hard to be a Brexiteer working in the charity sector. Um, and your response was, you know, pretty robust. <laughs> um, and I'd love to just, those the, the kind of diversity, you, diversity you've been talking about, explain to me why you don't think that is a kind of valid criticism.
1: So I read this article that was published I think a week or two weeks after the election in December. Um and the the sort of headline was something like charities need to do more to engage with the white working class or charities are too quote unquote woke to deal with society and we're out of touch. Um and the, the sort of main premise of it was we're too obsessed with this idea of diversity um and that diversity is ticking boxes um and on top of that, if Britain is voting for things like social conservatism, um, ethno-nationalism, um, and that's reflected in majority government, we should embrace that because it's clearly what people want. Um, and then that's all put under the umbrella off because the white working class wants this. Um, I took issue with it for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm a bit tired of... The white working class being treated as a monolith um, and being treated as if they're all exactly the same um, and they're all really racist. Um, And that's really the subtext that's there. And often when people are saying this, they're not themselves from the working class. I think it's also problematic because the working class has never been completely white. We've had black and brown people in the mills, in the mines, in the fields, in the on the picket line, in the trenches, for centuries, and there's that bit of Britain's story that's always conveniently forgotten—that is, kind of a global empire. People from the empire have been part of the working class here forever. Um, slaves on cotton fields and plantations—you know—were working; they were workers as well. Um, the other bit, yeah, the, the the belief that all of these values of tolerance, of Accepting our neighbors, of loving each other, of saying, "You're gay, you're straight, you were born here, you came here yesterday, but we all were all capable of living well together. The idea that that is just a metropolitan, liberal metropolitan idea for me is an even worse kind of snobbery than suggesting that you know. We can't live out of the city because everybody's a racist or something like that. It's, it's, it's a snobbery of a different type, and for me it feels even worse because it suggests that the working class are not capable of compassion. And I, I think I wrote in my response that when, when Abraham Lincoln led the North in the Civil War, um, the cotton mills in, in the north of England, they shut. They refused low-cost Southern American cotton in solidarity with the slaves. When, when Gandhi came to England, he made a point of going to those same towns to apologize for the damage that the Indian boycott of English cotton was causing to the working classes here. And they hosted him and they welcomed him and they stood in solidarity with the Indian independence movement. You had workers in mining towns standing in solidarity with queer communities in the 70s and 80s. Like There is this immense potential for compassion and solidarity. And every time we patronise the white working class by saying, I think we all just need to be a bit more racist (laughs) because it's clearly what they want. I think there's a bit of an agenda there and they're being used to mask it.
0: Okay. Um, Let's talk about the role of charities more broadly. Um, I feel like the kind of crisis of of legitimacy is true of almost any industry you can look at in a way that it's quite worrying um, and so the charity sector is far from on its own with a kind of public perception of um, loss of face or kind of questions around integrity but it has been there and someone who is a leader in the charity sector I'm sure you've been part of these conversations what, what voice do you think charity leaders can and should have now um, in terms of building a society in which we can live together with our difference and how do you navigate the fact that the last few years have been quite bruising for that voice?
1: I I think with charities, as with lots of other bits of our society, there's this tension that we've seen really come to the fore over the last three, four years around expertise. Who is an expert? What does expert opinion mean? Where does this experience and expertise fit into our national conversations? Um, I think we need to mount more robust defences of it, um, of that expertise in a way. I think also within our various subsectors, and I think people that work in everything from homelessness to nutritional security to ecology and the climate crisis to migration and race and all the rest of it, we do need to recognise the diversity with a small d within our movements and embrace it a little bit more. And by that, I don't just mean sort of the diversity of people. Um... But the diversity of voices and approaches. So coming back to that sort of dichotomy between the rabble rousers and the sort of
0: reconcilers,
1: and the reconcilers, I think there's a there's a bit too much distrust between the two, and and perhaps not enough recognition that we both have roles to play. Mm. That if you rioted at Stonewall decades ago, or you burned the American flag in protest against the Vietnam War, you were very much outside of that camp of people that could be called the reconcilers. But it's on the backs of that work and the enormous suffering that people experience in response to that. You know, people go to jail, people are beaten, people experience violence often when they're they're really out there. Forty years later, it's possible for us to be reconcilers it is possible for us to be reconcilers because somebody said the thing that was unsayable and so more people said it. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to recognise that we can't just be one or the other. We have to have both in our movements.
0: That's so helpful and so challenging. Um, Final question. What have you learnt about engaging across deep difference, whether religious, political, emotional... (laughs) taste in films, whatever it is. What have you learned? What helps? How do we have more human, more honest, more productive encounters?
1: There's a, there's a sort of communicator and organiser um, in America called Jonathan Smucker, um, who's written a lot based on his experiences working in kind of various generations of political campaign in the US. And, and above all, this sort of thesis that he puts out there into the world is meet people where they are. Um, And I very much buy into that. We have to meet people where they are always open with a question, whether you're knocking doors for a political party, whether you're having a round table or giving a set piece talk, ask people questions first. What are you concerned about? What is it that motivates you in the morning when you wake up? What is it that stops you from sleeping and makes you pace the halls at night once your kids are asleep? What are those things that are kind of really on the front of your brain right now? And you'll find that there is a lot that you have in common. There is so much that you have in common. But equally, have an idea of where you can go together. So it's that idea that if you have sections of society that subscribe to an ethno nationalist sort of vision of what Britain is, you can meet them where they are, you can identify that they have concerns. It doesn't mean that you have to accept their vision for Britain, but it means that once you've met them where they are, you can find some place to go together.
0: Yeah. We wrote um, a report called Making Multiculturalism Work, which, looking back, wasn't perhaps the wisest title because people project a lot onto that word, but it's about community organising and near neighbours and the way they bring together um, in a very kind of religiously comfortable melting pot of motivations and backgrounds and places on the political spectrum. Um, to listen to each other and solve problems. And I've always found it really inspiring. So nice to end on a community organizing reference. Satvis saying thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Soup Shop Productions, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts whether via Twitter at sacred podcast, or me at theos_elizabeth or thesacredpodcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take The Sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.